بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم السلام علیکم و رحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ پیس اینڈ بلیسنگز اف اللہ بی اپن یو او ویلکم ٹو انادر ایڈیشن اف دی بریکفاسٹ شو ہیئر آن دا وائس آف اسلام ریڈیو ٹوڈے از ونزڈے دی ٹینتھ آف اوگسٹ ٹوئنٹی ٹوئنٹی morning uh, breakfast show presenters uh, myself Shajil Ahmed and also Muhammad Atar as well with us Assalamu alaikum how are you doing this uh, this morning Wa alaikum assalam alhamdulillah by the grace of Allah I'm doing very well mm. it's always a pleasure to you know present here on the voice of Islam absolutely, radio absolutely. here at the house of victories at the battle of two mosque in Morden um Yeah I'm uh alhamdulillah I'm excited to be back you know we had the annual convention last e- weekend eventful eventful yeah, weekend isn't yeah, it yeah very eventful weekend yeah it was uh, you know so amazing to you know um take part in especially take part in the initiation ceremony once again mm. after so many years yeah it's like uh, you know being spiritually rejuvenated yeah exactly right? exactly i mean that's a that's a very good way to to, mm. to describe it as well um as our listeners would know or if you don't know the 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 Jalsa Salana of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is the is the annual convention um and uh, every every summer um in the beginning of August more or less uh it uh, you know it happens so the because his holiness the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community the caliph or, or the fi- the, f- the fifth caliph of the promised messiah upon whom be peace and his name is Hazrat Mirza Masrur Ahmad may Allah be his helper as uh, as he is our spiritual leader he resides i mean he's a world because it's a worldwide community it's not just a, a community based in the uk it's a worldwide community um we're spread over over 200 uh, over 200 countries mm. in the world and uh, because he resides here in the uk that's why the the uk annual convention is is an international convention as well because of um you know because of the the current uh, situation because of the because of the covid uh, the covid pandemic it was just a, you know it, it was just a uk sort of a uk based convention um but the dignitaries uh, and some other uh, prominent members of the community were invited from from overseas as well but mm. hopefully you know as we are as um, it, it was the attendance was like 26000 yeah, plus about 26, 000, but, yeah. but normally you know with all the overseas guests the attendance can be like 35 38000 hmm. easily mm-hmm. yeah no definitely yeah. definitely uh, so normally it is a much 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 bigger hmm. uh, event as well but uh, still it was it was still pretty big yeah yeah mm. definitely was uh, was uh, pretty big as well and just like you mentioned spiritually rejuvenating Uh, as well the you know the whole convention as well mm. um those you know the, the the those of our listeners who are sort of interested um in this it was a three day event and uh, all of the proceedings which happened uh, can actually be 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 listened to be be actually be viewed be watched they can be watched on our uh, on our tv channel which is mta um you know on sky they can they can uh, lo- you, you know they can just go into the channel if you've got a skybox 731 or you can uh, if you've got if you've got a computer if you've got a laptop you can go to the website www.mta.tv and listen to the the proceedings over there or just go onto youtube everyone's got youtube go on your phone mm-hmm. and type in mta.mta tv and uh, the the channel will come up you can listen to all the proceedings the documentaries which were actually made and broadcasted uh, over there as well so you know like we mentioned a very eventful uh, weekend which uh, all of us uh, you know all of us actually look forward to as well and uh, you know just getting back uh, b- back from that and one of the good things 
which uh, which was um, you know which happened over there as well on the weekend was that was that the weather was nice mm. the weather was good it, it yeah. didn't rain because it's in an open place mm. open field and it can get quite you know if it's if it's wet if it's raining then it can get you know it can get muddy can get a, a little bit difficult for all those thousands of cars trying to get out um, but still by the grace of uh, by the grace of God Almighty. It was uh, it was nice, uh, nice and uh, nice and hot, and that didn't happen. Mm. But um, more more to do with the the breakfast show at the moment as well. As our listeners would be aware, that after the the news segment, we will go to our main topics. We've got two main topics for today. Um, for the first part of the show, right after the the quick roundup of the news, we are going to be speaking about. Uh, how will UK see the slowest economic growth in the G7s? It's, it's quite an interesting topic, and uh, the economy is something which a lot of people are, are sort of um, talking about. They're afraid about how you know the, the inflation rates are going up. Everything is getting expensive. Um, the 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 cost of living is going up. The you know the bills, the energy bills, which people are paying. They're sort of doubling. If you look at the forecast, what's you know what what is looking like, what is going to look like, it's uh, it's a difficult situation we see ourselves in. So that's something that we're going to be speaking about. Hopefully, uh, to a professor of economics as well. We're going to be speaking to a little bit later on, uh, also, and and towards the towards the latter part of the show, we're going to be speaking about how to choose a meaningful career, something which is. Um, something which is good for you, something which is suitable for you, um, according to according to your interests, according to your degrees, what you've earned in university. If you ha- even if you haven't gone to university, we know what are your sort of aims uh, and objectives, what you want to achieve, how you want to achieve those things, and how you want to make a living. As well, it's important that it's important that you know the the career that you choose for yourself is something that you like doing. If you don't, if you don't want to do something, if you don't like doing something, uh, but you do it as a, as a profession, you do it as a you know you choose that as your career. May not you may not always get the same results um, as if you know you you did what you wanted to do. It's interesting as well. So hopefully, uh, you know we've got a few guests lined up as well. Hopefully we will be speaking to them a little bit later on so towards the letter part of the show as well it's an interactive show if you want to get in touch with us the zero the number to call in as always is zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk or go on to our instagram page which is also voice of islam uk and uh, leave us any comments as well if you want to uh if you want to convey any messages to us as well but like i mentioned it's an interactive show if you want to call us the lines are open zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight We'll be back after a short break and then we will go straight to the the quick roundup of the news. Uh, but we'll be, we'll be back right after a jiffy. <laughs> Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favors by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant. <laughs> <laughs> 
by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him. According to the lexicon, Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. A Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight, intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God. It is impossible to try and see him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person he reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek him and raises prophets to be their guide to him. His light is manifested through his prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, disseminated this light the most. For it was he who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion, and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of his servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? Assalamu alaikum to Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Um, right now we're going to go into our news, uh, our news segment, uh, our news, uh, our news topic, and uh, as we normally traditionally um, do anyway, um, we talk about the we talk about the the weather. And as we briefly just spoke about that before um, before the. Uh, before the quick break as well um the weather is and was looking quite nice and it has been looking quite nice um you know for, mm. for the past week or so as well uh even before that and during the weekend we we needed the weather to be good it was it was really good uh, by the grace uh, by the grace of god and the you know the forecast for the next couple of days uh you know to, uh, the weekend and the next couple of days is looking quite uh, quite good and promising as well so i i would say sort of a a, a good a good summer a mm. good summer, mm. uh, su- summer weather as well. Last year, I remember. <laughs> last year, I remember the weather was yeah. just not it. Mm. It was just not nice. So it was like the weather had COVID as well. <laughs> mm. I mean, literally, it was it was so dull and yeah. so grey, and it was always raining. 
Uh, I remember, you know, even during yeah, the apparently end convention, there's another heat wave right. coming. Like we need to like prep ourselves. I've yeah, I've heard, I've heard. Mm. There's another heat wave uh, coming as well, and how um, sort of you know, f- falling leaves, brown fields, and depleted reservoirs. Mm. Uh, you know, there's pictures, there's pictures which are shown. Um, you know, all pictures which you know which are being being shown that how the green areas are becoming a little bit uh, a little bit brownie and a little bit uh, a little bit dull but uh, but still but still um you know when the weather is nice you should you know try and try and enjoy it as much as we can as well um so you know in the news there are some uh, there are a couple of things which uh, you know which we want to speak about as well something which is quite um you know has come into the news quite recently is uh, what to expect if nurses go on strike in uh, in England obviously we don't want that yeah um you know obviously we definitely do not want that because mm. uh, you know what's going to happen to you know to all of those patients who rely on nurses doctors rely on nurses mm. um in fact the whole nhs they they rely they rely on nurses if yeah. they if they go on strike then imagine imagine what what the situation would be mm. what the situation would look like i mean we see you know when when uh, when bus drivers uh, or, or 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 train drivers uh, more more so, yeah, you know when they go on strike, if it's for, you know if it's a planned sort of strike for one day or whatever, uh, how much that affects the the general public. Hmm. So many people are are affected by that. But then, nurses going on strike. Yeah, just just imagine that. Hmm. All the hospitals, all the people, the patients that are in need. I mean, yes, the thing is, is that okay, fine. If they, if they, if they are cuts in their in their paychecks, right, hmm. and uh, they're working long hours. Yeah, they're working maybe longer hours than they than they used to, hmm. because because let's face it, because of Brexit, a lot of the nurses, a lot of the doctors, a lot of the staff in NHS, um. You know, they 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 went back to their countries mm. or they left, yeah. um, because you know because of because of because they simply weren't allowed to work here or mm. live here in mm. this country. Mm. So a lot of that force, a lot of that staff uh, workforce actually left, and then these people, the people that are left, they have to work long hours, yeah. and they sh- you know their shifts are so long, they get tired. Um, sometimes even you know long into their shifts as well. I mean, I'm talking about overtime mm. and then getting paid. You know they're not get, they're not it's not satisfactory, hmm. and the cost of living is definitely going up, but the minimum wage is not going up in the same manner. So you know it's uh, it's a difficult situation that they're in. I mean we do understand where they're coming from as well, uh, but nurses will vote next uh, next month on whether to strike uh, over pay, as we're talking about as well. Hmm. Um, is what you describe as a, as a as a you know defining moment for the for the profession. Yeah, and. Um, the thing is, is that last month the government announced a pay award that the the the, the RCN uh, said leaves and experienced nurses more than one thousand pounds worse off in real terms. So what they well, you know the officials the RN the, the RCN officials 
and industrial strike action is a last resort, but the current NHS staffing crisis is uh, is causing an uh, unacceptable risk to patients and also staff, something that we are speaking about as well. Mm. A formal pay announcement is still awaiting, awaited in Northern Ireland, while in Scotland, the college has urged its members to reject a 5% pay offer from the Scottish government. Mm. Um, the thing is, is that, yeah, fine, there is a 5% um you know that they're talking about but is that enough no, that's not enough five percent in real terms is not enough that's you the know, thing. It's, it's just that i just want to talk about this as well that in in regards to we see these you know these athletes uh yeah. footballers yeah for example not even the ones that are you know like world-class footballers obviously we know how much they earn yeah but even these uh, some of these uh, you know people play like pro clubs and stuff hmm even on a say a regional regional level some of them are earning 100,000 plus in a month yeah, yeah. that's crazy that's crazy that's crazy about. literally and they, 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 they're not even world class or anything they're not even world class or yeah anything. they'll just be like regional or like national teams and they're making crazy amounts and you know the thing 100,000 right yeah it, that's you know sometimes we, we see we see that um uh, normal, a normal person, hmm. not a normal person, but someone who's working on minimum wage is yeah. earning what 20, 20,000 20, 20, like per yeah. year, isn't it? Yeah, so basically 18, 20,000 per year, 18, 20,000, yeah. right? So, if that person in in five years, five, five years, years, it will take him to earn what that what guy earned earning, in one month, in one month, literally. Just imagine that, and that, and we're, 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 and we're just talking about normal, yeah. normal Premiership sort of yeah. Premier League uh, yeah. uh, footballers, or not even. And like you know the what they say: time is money. Time is money, isn't it? Time is money. Time is money. That's the thing. That's the thing. Mm. But That's one thing. You how won't crazy? Get back. How crazy? How mm. crazy is that? Mm. How crazy is that? And so, you know, uh, I spoke about this earlier as well. That the starting salary yeah. of a uh, member of parliament is eighty k. Yeah, 80k. Starting. Why do they not get minimum wage? And, and, and th- they have second, third they, jobs. Exactly. They have second and third exactly. homes. Exactly. They have like many other ways of uh, getting income. Businesses, Businesses offshore accounts. Their offshore accounts, their wives no, work. No tax. Yeah. Not, I, w- I wouldn't <laughs> I say mean, no I mean, tax, I'm not, I'm but like not, I'm in our opinion. Yeah, in our opinion. But you know, the, we do see this stuff in the news that yeah. you know MPs are accused of tax, tax cuts and avoiding taxes yeah. and having offshore accounts. Yeah. But... Um, Yes, this, and then we see it's these crazy. half, uh, these uh, sorry, uh, um, set up hard-working staff who are doing hard jobs, vital jobs, hmm. and they're getting, they're not getting appreciated. We clapped for them. Hmm. What is clapping going to do? What for was them? clapping going to do for them? I mean, yeah, fine. Yeah, we, we get it. Their work. We appreciate their work, but our <laughs> but appreciation isn't gonna, isn't gonna, you know, is it gonna give them the their table. money? Isn't gonna give them yeah, money? Isn't is gonna it? give them their like due rights essentially? Literally. We're not a genie that we're just clapping yeah. our hands and then they were exactly putting money in their pockets or whatever. Yeah. But still, you know, it's interesting as well because we we see the difference between you know these sort of um, people in society mm. and people mm. who are we're talking about footballers, right? Yeah. They are. For, I'm not saying average, it's an easy job. Like they have to train like crazy. I mean, that's fine. Okay, that's yeah. fine. That's fine. But but, but even the, then, but look at the age. Look mm. at the age difference mm. as well. Mm. Footballers. Right, they from twenty to thirty. That's yeah. that that that's decade their is their prime, yeah. right? Mm. That's their prime. Mm. And the people who are working, working class, yeah. they you know they you know they, I mean after twenty, thirty, forty, mm. they're earning that much as well. And we mm. we what we have just uh, you know discovered is that we haven't, we haven't just discovered it, but it's that person, a footballer, mm. right, an average footballer, in one week, mm. 
that is ten. I mean, five years of um, what you know, a person who's working on minimum mm. wage is go- is going to get. So mm. that's the equivalent. But then you see, you know, if you go a little bit further than that as well, the difference between how rich and the poor actually are. Mm. Even the people who are rich, the difference between them, talking about mil- millionaires mm. and billionaires. Mm. It's and what, crazy. What was that that, uh, in, what was in, that, uh, that you mentioned? That's, um, it's quite, so you a were, million seconds is yeah. about 11 something days. Right. And a million, uh, a billion seconds is 31 years. Yeah. That's that's the difference. Thirty-one years. That's the that's difference. That's the difference. It's just the one letter difference, M and B. Yeah. But eleven days and thirty-one years. Billion with a B. Yeah. yeah billion with a B. <laughs> literally, literally. And then we have we have we don't just have millionaires. We have multi-millionaires. And then we have we, multi-billionaires. We have billionaires and multi-billionaires mm. as well. And then it's you can't even fathom. Supposedly, Elon Musk is going to be the first trillionaire. Hmm. Right. I, 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 like it's not something I doubt it could happen I mean I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, the way it's going the, the way it's going <laughs> as well I mean the disparity yeah. you know the, the, the difference mm. between the rich and the poor is, is you know it's, it's, it's mind-boggling it's not, it's not well. that you know it's not it's, uh, that Islam discourages uh, you know people to not do well not to try not in their to business, exceed in not the business exceed in of their course business. of course yeah islam encourages that but to Definitely. have this level of uh, indifference yeah it's just it's, it's not right i mean you see people who are who are suffering yeah even in uh, uh developed countries mm. right they you know people who are homeless people mm. who um the it's difficult for them to pay the bills mm. and all of that you know just keep up with life yeah. you know it's difficult for them and talking up uh, talking about um all you know, the household the energy bills and everything. Um, you know what is uh, the trajectory is that households owe 1.3 billion pounds hmm. uh, to their energy supplies ahead of winter bill rises. Um, so that's um, is set. You know, before bills are set to soar by more than 80 percent. 80% mate mm. and the overall j- debt bill is already three times higher than it was a year ago mm. uh, experts at U-Switch said on uh, on Wednesday um, and uh, it seems likely it will grow further over the winter period as well 6 million homes across the UK owe an average of £206 to the energy provider, according to a survey from the from the company, mm. and in April the same average debt was uh, was one hundred and eighty eight pounds. So even that, yeah. even that is twenty thirty pounds more, mm. right? Twenty eight pounds more. Normally, at this time of year, people people have built up a small you know a small war chest uh, to help even uh, you know out the increased bills during the during the winter uh, months as well, but. Regulator uh, Ofgem is expected to hike the price cap on energy bills to £3,582 per year for the average household in Great Britain Hmm. from the beginning of October, according to a new forecast. Now, um, you know, obviously there's different analysts, different regulators as well, analysts in different companies. At Cornwell, analysts at Cornwell Hmm. Insight predicted further rises to £4,266 in January. And then £4,427 from the start of April. So, you know, that is... is I don't is, understand, you know, like they say that the war in Ukraine is doing all of this, that, you know, the, yeah. the Nord Stream, uh, you know, uh, the, the main gas line 
they've shut it off so they've had to rely on other sources other and means stuff. other ways yeah. other means other ways but um like I, I, I don't know i'm not an expert in yeah. this but it's just you know it's, it's hard to fathom you yeah. can't just blame it all on that because people because because especially uh um petrol as well right that you, they were a big uh, supplier of that as well right and the petrol companies they've told us hmm. B, uh, bp and shell yeah. that they've made multi billions in profit alone yeah even they didn't expect it even the ceo of i think the ceo of bp i read somewhere that he said there should be a windfall tax in place there's still nothing's nothing been done nothing's about been it. done nothing's been done but you know one thing which is uh, which is interesting as well is that i was looking at the the prices right mm. the the price rates for uh for you know for fuel mm. and it was you know petrol i think yesterday i saw uh in one of the one of the one of the bps i mm. believe it was mm. one one for petrol 173 yeah. yeah 173 and diesel was 81186 something like that mm. so it has gone down quite a, a lot bit. quite a lot a little bit yeah i mean if you think about if you think about what it was like a month ago mm. and if you think you know if you look at it now it, it has been it has been quite you know quite quite a difference as well mm. um also you know um when it comes to sort of energy plans and uh, things which are related to this as well mm. um uk is uh, you know bracing for blackouts in january as well blackouts blackouts like in january an emergency like in pakistan like in, literally <laughs> oh, literally that's the, that's the first thing that came to my mind as well now under the government's latest reasonable worst case scenario mm. um in inverted commas britain could face an electricity um, capacity shortfall mm. totaling about a, a sixth of peak demand and this is something what bloomberg has actually reported as well and mm. um, below average temperatures and reduced um, electricity imports from Norway and France mm. could expose four days in January when the UK may need to trigger emergency measures to 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 conserve gas this mm. is something which the mm. which the source has actually said i mean what has it come to now what has it come to we're living in the you know in in a developed country one of the most developed countries in in the world, in the world. not even in europe in mm. in the world right mm. supposedly We're, supposedly obviously mm-hmm. obviously supposedly namely had in Urdu but um the thing is is that how are we having blackouts mm. i mean fine i understand you know there's is a crisis that we're going through yeah but you know are we are we just a developing country now mm. is no country in the world a a a a proper developed country yeah or all the developments that we've that we've no, I mean, done no i mean look at countries like norway and sweden yeah. if you truly look at all their structure their economy the way they, the way they run the way yeah the way they run is they 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 the leading countries in my opinion i mean yeah i was looking at a sort of uh, a documentary and see all mm. of it but um prisons yeah. in norway yeah I mean they I they're mean they're chilling. They're chilling <laughs> literally. They they're better than like three yeah. th- three star hotels yeah. over here. Because because they don't believe <laughs> in um they they don't believe in punishment as such. They believe in um what's the word I'm looking for? Rehabilitation. Rehabilitation, re- yeah. reformation, reformation, something like that. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. And 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 that's why the crime rate in that country is so low. Hmm. That when when like they won't have repeat offenders as much. Hmm. 
I mean, if you go to prison, you yeah. you you want to be put in mm. there. Mm. Um, they they they, for, they do like the proper uh, like they'll get their A levels done. Mm. They'll do proper studies in there, and they won't be treated like mishumanely. Yeah, yeah, I know but, what you mean. I know what you mean. In in my opinion, some some uh, you know inhumane acts that people do commit, they obviously they should be in like solitary confinement. They don't deserve I mean, to see obviously, the depends. Day. Depends what what, depends what, what, what yeah. they've done, isn't it? Yeah, but here, here, even if you do like, if if it's not that serious of a crime, you could get like up to four years. Mm. Once you come out, you won't find a job. It's very hard That's to get thing. a job. That's the thing. And how are you supposed to stand up on your own feet? Yeah, you know, if you yeah. if you're not getting a job, if mm. you you say if you could work before, but you but you can't anymore, yeah. what are you gonna do? Mm. And you're young, mm. you have to make a living, and this is why you know the people why. You know when people are frustrated, mm. and His Holiness has spoken about this before as well. Mm. When people are frustrated, when they've got their degrees, when they've got their 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 diplomas or whatever mm. from university, from college, they look for a job, they can't find a job, yeah. and then the jobs that they can find are you know are either in sort of you know, I'm not looking down upon it, but say retail, mm. you know, mm. working in like you know one of the retail like shops, fast food restaurants, yeah. and they say, come on, we've done. Seven-year degree, mm. four, five, six-year degrees. Mm. We've got a diploma and something, and this is a job that we're getting. They're gonna get frustrated, mm. and this is how the people, you know, terrorists and all of these ISIS groups and all of these, um, um, uh, you know, all these people, they they sort of instigate this. They use this, and then they 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 provoke them. That you know, come mm. to our side. We will give you money. We will give you this. We'll give you that. Mm. All you have to do is. Do this highness, highness act, yeah. highness crime, mm. and uh, nothing will happen. And then this is how people get frustrated as well. But that's uh, a topic for a different, uh, a different day as well. Yeah, let's move on to uh, to what we're actually going to be speaking about in the first uh, hour or so. Um, we're you know we're talking about um, will UK see the lowest economic growth in the in the G seven now the. The gist of the story is that the IMF states that the UK economy, something that we are just speaking about as well, has the slowest economic growth in the G7. Um, this uh, and this, some you know, what we're going to try to be, try, what we're going to try and speak about is that we will try to sort of compare the economies of other G7 countries and understand the meaning behind the data as well. So. Some general information for you know for for the layman, the the world's l- lender of last resort has uh, has appealed for central banks to raise interest rates and for governments to take responsibility stance with public finances, while warning of a more complex Im- complex impact from the global inflation shock. Now the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund, y- uses updated world economic outlook to to take another red pen um, to growth forecasts as economies battle the impact of rising prices. And it said that growth was stalling in the world's three largest economies, the US, the United States, China and Eurozone, as a consequence of the deteriorating picture for inflation. Linked the linked to the you know of course the, the COVID pandemic and you know what we what we mm. were speaking about as well, the 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 the, the Russians uh, the Russian Ukraine war as well, forecasting that the problem would remain more stubborn um, than predicted in its uh, in its previous update. 
Now, chillingly, it warned that, you know, under a plausible scenario, downside risks for the global economy, including a complete shutdown in Russia, gas supplies to Europe and prolonged zero COVID lockdowns in China, would actually result in one of the worst performances of output since 1970. Uh, that's something which, uh, you know, something that it uh, uh, something that it, it, it released as well, a study. Now, the fund's new forecast saw global growth of 3.2% for, for 2022, mm. a downwards revision of, of 0.4% on April's forecast. Mm. Uh, so it is it is interesting, uh, uh, you know, the situation that we, that we actually in. Yeah, I'm delighted to say we do have online with us our first guest of the morning, Dr. Parvez Dabir Alai who is an eco- uh, economist. He works as a professor of economics at Richmond University in London. Most of his research deals with investigating uh, emerging economy issues. And his latest paper investigates the link between poverty, political power and uh, malnutrition in developing countries. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you so much. Thank you for that warm introduction as well. No worries. It's a pleasure to have you on. Just to begin with, could you please tell us about um, your role as a professor of economics? Sure, thank you. Um, the role I have is really not that different to what other professors of economics do in other institutions around the country. Hmm. Um, pri- primarily, uh, I, uh, uh, I offer teaching to students, I engage in research, I mentor uh, junior colleagues, I mentor students, I take some leadership in research, um, and uh, also engaging in in, uh, some kind of uh, management uh, aspects of of the operation of of my unit. Hmm. So it's a combination of different things, research, teaching, mentorship, um, and of course, you need to use a lot of creativity yeah. when, when, when all of those uh, different aspects of your role need to work together. Hmm. Um, I, I think perhaps the most significant role that I, I, I've had in my years as a professor, professor of economics, is um, is teaching, research, and, and mentorship. Kind of about a third, a third, and a third, if you like those three elements yeah um yeah (laughs) Yeah. thank you uh so you know why do you think the uk currently has such a you know slow growth um in terms of the economy in uh, in comparison with the other g7 countries yes very good question thank you um the problems are unfortunately from my point of view and, and, and others that one hears from is really quite deep-seated. Um, I, I, I heard yourself uh, having a conversation just before I came on about some forecasts. Hmm. Um, uh, I, I think there are basically two main elements and, and, and a third one. The two main elements uh, are... Um, uh, the fact that, I, I, I guess in answer to your question, one needs to have some kind of a time scale in mind. Yeah. Uh, the, the most recent uh, 
period, you know, say the last couple of years or so, uh, we've we've had uh, to cope with the shock of uh, the coronavirus pandemic, mm. obviously, but but that's been a global phenomenon. So uh, practically all countries around the world have been hit by that. We're not unique in that. Yeah. But it's hit us particularly badly, I, I think, perhaps because we've had some other major economic shocks that have arrived at more or less the same time hmm. as well. And I'm going to use the B word as somewhat controversial, perhaps, Brexit. Um, yeah. we, we voted, when was it, in 2016, June hmm. 2016, to leave the European Union. And that uh, process really kicked in just a couple of years or so ago. Yeah. Uh, soon after... Uh, uh, Prime Minister Johnson uh, came into office in December 2019, as I recall. Hmm. So, so other, other countries in the world, within the G7, uh, particularly European ones, obviously, they, they haven't had the Brexit experience. So in, in many ways, we've cut off our nose despite our face, so, so to speak. Hmm. So we have these two kind of major um, challenges, Brexit and the pandemic. Uh, if it wasn't for Brexit, uh, our response to the pandemic might have been somewhat easier. Um, so if you compare us to other countries within the G7, yeah. uh, none of them have had to experience the, the macroeconomic shocks that go along with the experience of Brexit. They've just had to do really with, with the pandemic as such. Hence, their responses and their reactions to those challenges has been different, hmm. uh, and uh, they've they've coped, I would say, better. Um, so, I, I think uh, I think the UK. I mean, those two issues have been quite critical for us. The kind of third reason, which is a much more kind of long term issue for the UK, is lack of sufficient public investment. Hmm. Um, in the provision of public services, you know, uh, yeah. the NHS, the you know law enforcement, public housing, um, all of those kinds of areas have been largely neglected, I would say, since the, uh, since about 12, 13 years ago, as the financial crisis came to an end. Hmm. The Cameron government of 2010 and the Cameron government of 2015 were very keen on this idea of pushing forward their agenda on austerity. Basically, in, in everyday language, it means cutting back yeah. on public spending and aiming to kind of balance the books, so to speak. Hmm. Uh, it's really very difficult to, to do that successfully. They tried it and in my view, at least, they failed. Yeah. Uh, so a combination of increasing measures designed to bring about austerity and Brexit and the pandemic hmm. uh, are, I would say, are the kind of two and a half, three main reasons as to why the UK has been struggling as compared to the other G7 economies around the world. Yeah. Professor, when we talk about all of these, um, you know, all of these reasons, all of these factors, how and why um, the UK has suffered, maybe a little bit more as well because of these, uh, because of these things. 
Mm. How how can the UK economy be improved then? Another very good question. Um, well, the, the kind of easiest answer to to your question is to, uh, and and what I'm about to suggest is of course it's not going to happen. But mm. but 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 the easiest thing would be to reverse past mistakes, but we can't go back on Brexit. Yeah. We can't cancel out the impact of uh, the coronavirus yeah, pandemic. So those two are given. Yeah. They're part of our history now. Uh, the sad thing is that Brexit, certainly from my point of view, is what was entirely self-inflicted. The pandemic was out of our hands. Right. Um, yeah. But looking forward rather than backwards, uh, I guess the, what, what we really need to witness going forward is uh, more engagement from the state in um, in the economy, mm. um, uh, propping up public services, uh, as I mentioned a little earlier. Um, yeah. Similar kind of schemes to what um, the previous chancellor. Uh, Mr. Sunak, Rishi Sunak introduced with the furlough scheme. Mm. Those kinds of measures, in, in, in economics language, I would say kind of traditional Keynesian tools of you know, relying on good, strong fiscal measures to uh, possibly increase uh, taxations. I mean, I, I think both leadership candidates in the Conservative Party race, uh, certainly Liz Truss uh, have ruled out uh, the possibility of introducing windfall taxes, for example, on very large energy companies. It's measures such as that that I think are really, really vital at this crucial time. Um, um, uh, Really raising taxes on those who can afford to pay more, I I think it has to be a vital part of any solution going forward uh, and uh, the, the revenues that are raised can can then help in uh, um, uh, facilitating more uh, public investment uh, in various areas of the economy as well as obviously you know he- helping the, the, the poorer households hmm. who've been affected really badly by by the by the issues that, that we, we see around us and have been seeing around us for 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 some time. Hmm. So, I mean, we, talk, we talk about you spoke about you know fiscal fiscal prescriptions and furlough schemes you know which are hmm. you know which are quite good for you know which are quite good for you know those companies those businesses even those people that are working over there as well um, which you know didn't find work because of the pandemic because of the different factors yeah. as well. But then we we see that inflation the inflation rates are definitely definitely going up as well. And you spoke about how. We need to focus on, or the government needs to focus on those people who are sort of the the lower class as well, or the, or the working class maybe, who need more help. Yes. But then we see that the central banks, because of the inf- inflation rates, they they want to increase the the you know the the you know the um, uh, the interest rates as well. But then wouldn't that just lead in a recession then? Um. Yes, I, I think you, you make a good point there. I mean, raising interest rates at this time hmm. in the UK, in the United States, and elsewhere, yeah. I think is uh, is ill-advised, I, I, I would say. Um, 
the the solution that these increases in interest rates are intended to address mm. uh, is the cost of living inflation problems that, that you mentioned. Unfortunately, um, or, or um, perhaps not unfortunately, the, the fact of the matter is that the, the rapid uh, increase in prices that we are seeing, the, the fastest in 35, 40 years, are, are almost entirely due to supply chain issues brought about in the UK context anyway, mm. due to the t- uh, two out of the three measures, uh, uh, issues I raised earlier, Brexit and the pandemic. Mm. Interest rate changes, interest rate increases uh, can be quite a useful tool against fighting inflation if the source of that inflation is demand-led. So if mm. there's lots of consumers rushing out to take loans and, and increase their consumption spending in a kind of a consistent and, and persistent level, then making the cost of that credit higher would act as a kind of a discouraging mm. uh, uh, effect on that spending and help keep inflation in check. But the current situation uh, is very different to that. So it really doesn't make a lot of sense yeah. why Mr. Bailey at, a, at the Bank of England is, and his fellow economists at, on the NPC have, have chosen to raise interest rates. I, I think my personal view is that they've come under a lot of political pressure um, and uh, and that's why they've, they've reacted in this way. Mm. Uh, and of course, the Bank of England is supposed to have operational independence and not be subject to political pressure. But uh, I, I think they have uh, inadvertently, perhaps, come under a lot of political pressure. Mm. Could be. Yeah. Trust as has been threatening, if I can use that word, <laughs> to, to review that the Bank of England's mandate should she become prime minister. So yeah. the bank is a little bit nervous, I would say, in terms yeah. of what might lie ahead. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So you, you're quite right. Yeah. Rising interest rates are very likely to, to worsen the situation. And they'll probably contribute to, to a, a prolonged recession within the UK, perhaps elsewhere as well. Yeah, I mean that's. I mean that's. Uh, it it is interesting uh, as well. The reason why they've done it, maybe I don't know. Maybe just like you said, uh, suggested as well that maybe they're coming under a lot of uh, political pressure as well, which could be could be the case as well. But, as well, but also what you mentioned that the Bank of England uh, was supposed to be you know sort of uh, independent uh, as well. But Dr. Provez, uh, the beer has been an absolute uh, pleasure speaking to you this, uh, to you this morning. And uh, got some, you know, some great insight in terms of uh, this as well. Uh, thank you, and uh, have a lovely day. Thank you so much, and thank you for hosting me this morning. Thank you. Absolute All pleasure. All the best. Absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you. Bye. That was uh, Dr. Pervez Dabir Alai, who is an economist and he works as a professor of economics at Richmond University in London. Um, we're going to continue this topic for a little bit just after the just after the news roundup, uh, the news break as well, uh, just to give a little bit uh, what uh, what Islam's teachings are in terms of you know mm. giving rights to the poor, giving rights to the people, you know the, the subordinates, uh, the general public uh, mm. as well, the subordinates of a particular country or a particular government. I say, so join us after the break. Don't go anywhere. Allah. 
Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam radio. Before the break, we were speaking to a professor, Dr. Professor Dabir Alai, from oh, he's a professor of economics at uh, at Richmond University. It was a uh, quite interesting speaking to him as well. We don't know why. Um, I mean, I asked him. The, I asked him why you know the the um, they they they're, reason, they're raising the interest rates, and he said maybe you know they they're coming under the uh, they're coming under pressure um, from from politics from the government as well. Maybe under political pressure, the the Bank of England are, are are is raising the interest rates. But I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I mean, for they one reason or the of other, inflation, right? They ra- yeah, they, they, because because of inflation, they're raising mm. the interest, interest rates. rates. Yeah, but, so the central bank mm. is they can do it if they want to. Mm. They can just raise the infl- yeah. uh, the interest rates. And uh, the, I mean, the, you know what's interesting is, is that His Holiness, the the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmad, may Allah be pleased with him. He actually said in one of his uh, in one of his books, in one of his writings, I believe it was him or the fourth caliph mm. of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. May, may may God have mercy on him. They said that you know because of uh, the inflation rates, when it's when it's inflation, when there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of money being um, circulated, but you know the prices of everything has gone up, right? Yeah. Um, so there's you need to spend more money to get you know let's say a loaf of bread you need mm. to spend a thousand pounds for example I'm just saying yeah. um, it ha- normally generally happens after a war mm. but when that happens the 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 banks the central banks they raise the interest rates in the sense that people won't borrow that much money yeah they won't borrow that much money so the banks don't have to lend mm. that much money mm. they think that it's going to happen but what that actually does is that that just in the end, that just causes a recession. Hmm. So everything is a, it's just upside down. Yeah. The whole economic system is just upside down. Hmm. And then it, you just have to start afresh, hmm. sort of, uh, as well. Um, you know, also this happens because of um, printing money for no reason. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you've got a currency which is running, printing money for no apparent reason hmm. is also one of, just one of the factors why this uh, why this happens as well um um we, you know which actually leads to this not why it happens but w- something which leads to to this sort of uh, mm. outcome as well now something which islam actually says uh, is that in chapter 43 verse 86 of the holy quran allah the almighty allah the almighty states that ultimately 
everything will be brought back to him. And this means that everything in the world belongs to God Almighty. Mm. And he has absolute ownership over everything, anything that you can imagine of, the whole world. Um, the, 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 and, and this is the basic concept, concept of his, uh, for Islam and its economy. It's mm. interesting. And uh, because you know the, the the worldwide head of the or the the, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the Promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, he has also said that you know the, when it comes to divine law mm. and when it comes to the law of nature, they are very much interlinked. Mm. It's not that God Almighty, because He created everything, He created the law of nature, mm. and then He created the law, the divine law, you mm. know, the Sharia law, or whatever, however you want to say it, in in a different way. Mm. They both work in you know in parallel. They work yeah. in hand, they, they go hand in hand. Mm. So the way that Allah the Almighty has made the whole world, that is also how He made the economic system as well. Yeah. So instead of building a home on Earth, we should be you know trying to thinking about uh, building one in the in the hereafter. Mm. And what um, what this actually means is that this verse of the Holy Quran it, it sort of reminds us. That all worldly governments, whether you know kingdoms and governments and powers un- that are under God's command and are granted to human beings only as a trust. Now, man must not consider himself unaccountable just because he has the power and ownership of material wealth that he has been, you know, that he has been given in this world. Now, he may appear to have authority, you know, governments and you know kings and rulers of the world. Um, and ownership on the, on the surface, but in truth, he has o- he is only a hope. There's only a trust that's been bestowed to him by God Almighty. And human beings are answerable before God that uh, that they rightfully discharge their duties and the trust which are you know which are entrusted upon them. Now, as I mentioned before, the the the, the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, may God be pleased with him. He has written a very um, a very interesting book, the economic system of Islam, um, and this is uh, anyone who you know who's, who's an economist, they must go through this book. They, they mm. must read this book as well. Um, and he sort of demonstrates that the real solution to the problems, you know, which we're sort of currently facing, is that one, in accordance with the Islamic teachings, the rights of the poor should be safeguarded. Yeah, and uh, on the other hand. Um, secondly, the the hopes and aspirations of people should be should also be fostered as well. So there are different things which Islam actually says. Um, Islam is against any sort of mechanism that leads to guaranteed profit hmm. and uh, the monopolization of wealth in a few hands as well. So as we spoke about in the beginning of the show as well, that those people who are getting rich. They're just getting richer and richer, yeah. and the the rights of the poor are not being looked at mm. in the same regard, uh, you know, as 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 they should be. So rather, Islam seeks to ensure that money continues to circulate through the economy, so that the the poorest segment of society also has a chance to improve um, itself as well. So there are different things which you know which Islam actually says as well, and zakat is one of them. Yeah. Zakat is definitely one of them. It's one of the five pillars of Islam. And it literally is taking the money from the rich and mm. giving it giving it to the poor, those people who are in need of uh, of these funds to be to to be come in to you know to actually come in as uh, as well. We've got a brief audio clip that we 
that we want to that we want to actually play for our listeners as well, which sort of discusses um, the issue about uh, printing too much money. As I mm. you know, just uh, spoke a little bit about that as well. But let's listen to to this uh, brief audio clip. It's from Rational Religion. The, what's the real world consequences for society, for the environment, for foreign policy of the endless creation of money? Yes. I mean, this is a deep question. Uh, there are Thank many, you. There are many. Thank you. <laughs> the That's what we got in for. Because it, it takes us into multiple problems, um, which people often don't connect with, with banking and money. If I was to say to you that the plastic in the sea or global warming is connected to this system of money uh, creation and banking and interest charges, then you'd be tempted to laugh if you were new to the subject. But I sincerely believe that uh, uh, the major cause of the environmental problems that we're having in the world and the wealth inequality uh, and the conflict, the foreign policy issues, the immigrants on boats coming into Europe, you know, half of this or more. You know, in a, uh, it's difficult to put a percentage It's on difficult it, really. to put a percentage, but I would but, say but a majority. The, big, big, poor, the biggest portion of that problem is because of the monetary system that we have. And why is that? What's that got to do with the printing of money endlessly? So, so one example is that, uh, let's go back to the golden receipts thing and start there. If, um, let's say there were 100 pounds of gold coins in, in circulation in the whole nation, mm. and I as a banker create 500 receipts, 500 pounds of receipts, and lend them to you at uh, 30% interest, something like that. Um, after one year, these five hundred pounds of receipts have to be repaid, and you have to pay me the interest charge. Thirty pound, thirty percent on five hundred is one hundred and fifty. Yeah. So you'd have to pay me six hundred and fifty. Yeah. Now the problem is that at the beginning of the year there was one hundred of gold coins and five hundred of paper notes, which the bank created. Mm. So there's only six hundred of money in total in the whole society, yeah. in the whole nation. Yeah. And yet now the bank is asking the nation to repay six hundred and fifty. So the point is that at the end of every accounting period, there is not enough money to repay the debts that are owed to the bank. Yeah. Whether it's the government or the people or companies, in total, there is not enough money to repay what we owe to the banks at the end of every year. Yeah. And the only way that society can react to that is by borrowing more money from the bank. So, dear listeners, we do hope that, you know, you've been uh, enjoying today's show so far. That was a very interesting audio clip we just listened to explaining how, you know, um, interest rates work. Um, we'll be taking a very short break before we move on to our second segment of the morning. Um, you know, it's it's in regards to choosing uh, a meaningful meaningful career. Uh, so please do join us after the very short break. Hazrat Yusuf, on whom be peace, mentions God's favours by virtue of his attribute of Al-Latif, the benignant, by recalling how God was his friend, while his brothers conspired against him according to the lexicon. Latif is a kind of gracious being, one who is benevolent to his creation, as well as one who is aware of all subtle and incomprehensible matters. Al-Latif is one who illuminates hearts, who makes arrangements for physical and spiritual nourishment, and who offers his friendship to his servants during times of tribulation. The promised Messiah on whom be peace said that sight 
intellect, and consciousness cannot reach God, it is impossible to try and see Him. He is Al-Latif. He is unseen and illuminates the person He reaches to such an extent that the person speaks for Him, a divine honor mostly granted upon the prophets of God. God is the knower of all subtleties and is all aware. He is of those who seek Him and raises prophets to be their guide to Him. His light is manifested through His prophets as they spread the light of unity of God all around them. Among all the prophets of God, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, disseminated this light the most. For it was he who had the most perfect perception of God, and it was he who was completely imbued in the colors of God. In the current age, because of his perfect and complete devotion and subservience to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, God has granted this distinct honor to the promised Messiah, on whom be peace. It is the attribute of Al-Latif that makes God the friend of His servants in all trials and tribulations. Just as the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, continuously prayed for the reformation of his Ummah as well as his opponents, as only Al-Latif can be the guidance and reformation. Al-Latif is the supporter of the victim, the voice of the oppressed. Al-Latif is that companion whose loyalty never fails to astound. It is he who fills hearts with his magnificent light. Then should we not be grateful for the mercy of Al-Latif? The Promised Messiah, peace be on him, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community in Islam states, Sin, which indeed is a poison, is born when a man is wanting in obedience to God and is empty of his love and his affectionate remembrance. The fate of a man whose heart has become cold to the love of God is like that of an uprooted tree, no longer capable of drawing the sap of life from the soil. As such, a tree gradually withers and dies. So like the dryness of the tree, Sin overwhelms the heart. The remedy for this state of dryness, according to the law of nature, is of three types. Number one, love. Number two, istighfar, that is, seeking forgiveness of Allah. It literally means a desire to bury or to cover, reminding one that as long as the root of the tree is buried in the soil, it can hope to bring forth green foliage. Number three, the third remedy is Tawbah, which means to turn towards God in all humility, drawing the sap of life and to bring oneself closer to Him, to break loose with the help of righteous deeds from the enveloping cover of sinfulness. Tawbah cannot be achieved merely by word of mouth. In fact, Tawbah can be perfected only with the help of righteous deeds. All acts of goodness are aimed at achieving perfection of Tawbah.
Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the breakfast show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. And um, on this part, we on this part of the show, we're talking about um, sort of something which is quite practical as well. Mm. How to sort of how to choose a meaningful a meaningful career something which is um, you know these days we see that we see it we see it we hear about it we see so many stories about it as well that um, so many new jobs and opportunities are there uh, but it becomes inc- you know sort of difficult to find the job mm. and this same we're sort of going to be speaking you know about that as well yeah. So I'm delighted to say we do have our first guest on the line for this topic with us this morning, Professor Jonathan Harris, who has been teaching history at the Royal Holloway University in London since 1999. Before that, he was a dedicated research fellow at University College of London. He has also been an English teacher as a foreign language uh, and has worked in several jobs. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor. Good morning to you. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, can you uh, briefly talk about your role as a history lecturer at Royal Holloway and what it um, involves? Yes, yes, certainly. I mean, it, it's. I would say it doesn't only involve history. Yeah. I, better, I better say that straight mm. away. Mm. I mean, teaching in a university really, it, it's it's got three elements, I suppose. Yeah. Um, first of all, obviously teaching. Um, then there's research. Um, and then there's administration, which I think perhaps not everybody realises is, is part of the job. Hmm. Um, so teaching is what we do in term time. That's the obvious thing. Um, during the vacations, that's when we do our research. Um, I think a lot of people think that academics, university teachers spend the summer sort of with their feet up on the beach. But actually, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> really, yeah. Believe me. Um, you know, August is a really busy time for us because we're, we're finishing our books. We're off in the libraries, we're searching and in the archives. Yeah. Um, so that's a big part of the job. It, it's actually in our contracts. We're supposed to produce research. Hmm. Um, that's across the board, whatever, whatever topic you're, you're teaching, whether it's biophysics or history or French or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's administration. I mean, it's, and this depends. I mean, some university teachers do a big administrative job. 
Uh, you can be head of department, hmm. um, which is a kind of managerial job. You do that for about three years. Yeah. Um, and if you really like it, you can go on and be a dean or a vice principal, in which case you become a full-time manager hmm. and you, you, don't, you don't teach and research at all. Uh, most of us do something a bit more modest, I have to say. I, I'm, I'm, I'm simply the co-director of an MA program, but that, that yeah. is part of the job, very much so. Yeah. Uh, so the ne- next question is like a two-part question. So what topics of history do you specialize in? And do you have any tips for our listeners who like, you know, might find it challenging to pick one niche topic in their respective fields? Yeah, this is a, that, that's a very good point, really. Um, I'm slightly unusual. I mean, mm. in, in most history departments, you'll always have somebody doing modern European history. Yeah. Um, you know, you know, those kind of things, somebody in Russia, Nazi Germany, these kind mm. of things, are, you know, that you always find those. But I'm a, a specialist in the history of Byzantium. Oh, okay. Um, That's which is unusual. I mean, it, 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 uh, Byzantium is, is basically, it's the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Um, and when the western part sort of declines and falls in the 5th century and disappears, the bit that included Britain, um, the, the eastern half carries on. Uh, and it carries on for about a thousand years. It's not a flash in the pan. So it's a kind of separate civilization. Um, and it's interesting because it's kind of juxtaposed between the Christian West and the Islamic East. And it's influenced by both. Yeah. It's a Christian civilization, but you can see the influence of Islam. Hmm. Uh, there and it is likewise influencing Islam, yeah. um, and it lasts until about 1453. Um, so that that's my my topic. Um, now, yes, for for students, how do you know, know which topic to go for? Yeah. Um, especially, you, I'll, I'll talk about history because that's what I'll know about. You know, you at A level, you don't get a choice. I know a lot of your readers are probably waiting for your your listeners are waiting for for their results at the moment. Um, but you know, yeah. <laughs> at school, they, the, the teacher just says, you know, okay, we're going to do um, Stalin, and off mm. you go, you do Stalin. Then we're going to do Elizabeth first, do Elizabeth first. Yeah. At university, you know, they give you this great list of topics, you know, you can go to. Uh, and my advice to you is follow your heart. Mm. Um, literally, just go to everything, listen to it, and some topics will call to you. Yeah. You know, something you, you, you never never thought about before. For example, American history might suddenly call to you and think, wow, I'd really like to pursue that. Other topics, you'll think, no, no, that leaves me cold. Hmm. Um, I, that's not for me. I'll, hmm. I'll, I'll not do that. Uh, because that's exactly what happened to me. I mean, in my first week at university, I walked into a lecture on the history of Byzantium, um, and that's what got me interested. Yeah. And I had been ever since. So, yeah. you know, the advice is follow your heart, folks. Okay. Okay. So, so you you spoke. We spoke about uh, a bit about specialization. I just want to be uh, ask a bit more broader question. Like, what advice can you give to those who are unsure of what career path they should, uh, you know, take? Well, it's a it's a difficult one. Isn't it? I mean, people sometimes feel apologetic because they don't know what they want to do. But that's I think it's pretty natural at this stage. If you're literally just at the finishing the A level stage, yeah. Um, you know, I did have you know not not everybody's like that. I did have a friend who I think at age thirteen, um, you know, he said I'm going to be a solicitor, and you know, he went off and he became a solicitor, and now he's a partner in a in a in a city firm yeah um but um you know that's that's you know not everyone's like that and that's where i think a humanities degree hmm. is kind of important because it's especially for those of us um who aren't sure who don't see our our, our life mapped out from from age 13 yeah um because history effectively um is a way of learning 
through what you love doing. And it's the same with all the humanities, whether it's English literature or language or something like that. Hmm. Um, you learn through, through what you like. And it teaches you, history specifically teaches you a very important skill. Yeah. And the skill is how to process information and base reasoned arguments on it. And, and that qualifies you for a huge number of careers. Yeah, it really does. I mean, I know, a, you know, a lot of people at, at this stage, you know, the A-level stage, you get pressure from your family. Yeah, um, I certainly do. They say, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with your life? You know, and, and you, you find it very difficult to answer that question. Hmm. Well, my answer is, well, look at some of my students who have done history degrees and what they've gone on to do. Um, I'll just give you some recent careers students of mine have gone into. I've got two who are press officers, hmm. um, one for a political party and one for a large archival institution. Okay. Um, and their job is to look at, you know, the news, hmm. um, look at um, what anniversaries are coming up, yeah. and then run those on social media to actually... So what they're doing is they're processing information and they're using that information to publicize their institution hmm. and um, put forward its point of view, um, publicize what it's offering to the public. Yeah. Um, and that is a job for which a history degree just so qualifies you. Hmm. Um, you know, certainly others I've now got several in publishing, somebody who works for a financial ombudsman service. Hmm. Um, one of them is a procurement officer for a town council in Berkshire. Okay. Um, and one of them joined the police. So there you okay. are. Hmm. And um, what are some important factors, you know, one should consider if they want to pursue a career in, um, in, in, in the history? Well, absolutely. I mean, you, you know, although history qualifies you for um, lots of different careers, I mean, let's not rule out history itself. Um, mm. And there are opportunities to work in history if that's what you love. Yeah. Um, the obvious one is teaching in a school. Hmm. Um, and you know, so uh, you do your degree, and then you have to take a one-year PGCE course. I'm not quite sure what it's still called that, but, um, but that, you know, usually you can get a grant or a loan for that. Yeah. Um, sometimes you can combine it with work. You can work in a school and do the PGCE at the same time. Um, and but before you you go into that one, I mean, you really have to ask yourself: Do I? would I enjoy sharing my interest in history with children and young people? Hmm. Some people love that. Not yeah. everybody does. I mean, it helps as well if you like sport, I have to say, because hmm. um, most schools love someone who can also obviously then take them off and, and you know, teach them football and, and those kinds of things. But yeah. if you don't know, the best way to find out is why not volunteer as a classroom assistant hmm. in a local primary school or something? Several of my students have done that. And that, that way you'll find out, well, do I like working in a school environment? Yeah, and uh, you get the feel of what working in a school is like. It's not the same as being a pupil. We've all been at school, so we know it from that angle. Hmm. But we don't know what goes on behind the scenes, and um, so that that's that's a way of doing it. And lots of my students have gone in, into in, into teaching history, and they absolutely love it. They re they really do. It's, it's a great career. Yeah, um, but that's just the obvious one. Hmm. Um, there's all these other. Um, things you can use history for there's the heritage industry hmm. um, working in museums yeah. and, and then the, there's jobs that, that kind of pop up hmm. um, one of my students is an assistant um, to two professors in Oxford okay. um, he just saw the job hmm. um, advertised in the paper applied for it and he got it so he's hmm. working in history not as a teacher but as a kind of researcher yeah so things come up 
Mm. Um, again, how do you know whether you might like this? Maybe volunteer. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, maybe there's a local national trust property, English heritage, or yeah. Scottish or Welsh, for your re, uh, listeners who might might be in, in those countries. Yeah. Um, you know, go along, and you, they always need people, don't they, to sit in the rooms to make mm. sure you don't steal the china or anything, and then you also tell people about, you know, about the house. So that's another way of, of just thinking, well, um, you know, perhaps let's explore this. Yeah. Um, so that's number two. And then, of course, there, there's the job I do, being, being a university lecturer. Yeah. Um, for this one, you need the degrees of MA and PhD. Um, and the PhD um, is a, a, a degree by research. It takes three or four years, yeah. and effectively you write a book. Um, so actually doing a PhD is something really rewarding in its own right, because at the end of it, you can actually say, well, look, here's my, here's my PhD thesis, here's my book. And a lot of people then publish it as a book. Um, so that's a, a real life achievement to have that, to actually yeah. you, you know, hold your book in your, in, in, in your hand. Um, and when you've got a PhD, yes, that can lead on to a, a, an academic job in a university. One of my PhD students now, he's at the University of Edinburgh, yeah. Um, but actually, about fifty percent, only about fifty percent of people with PhDs do actually become lecturers. Hmm. Uh, might even might even be fewer than that. Might only be about forty percent. Um, but there are other jobs that a PhD um, qualifies you for. For example, one of my former PhD students, he's gone into university administration. Yeah. Um, and he runs um, a um, PhD program in, mm. a, in a university near London. So um, another one, he's, um, he's an archivist at the National Archive in Kew. So PhD doesn't necessarily just mean you have to be a university teacher. Yeah. Uh, lots of other things are, are going to, to, to turn up. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. You know, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show, and we had such a you know wo- you shared some wonderful things with us. Uh, we'd love to have you again on sometimes as well. Uh, another it's been time. a great pleasure. Yeah, thank thank you thank you for for everything. Nice uh, speaking to you. B- bye for now. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye. Yeah. So uh-huh. that was um, you know Professor Jonathan Harris mm. um, from the who teaches history at Royal Holloway University of. London. Very, 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 you know, very interesting. interesting yeah, uh, listening to him as well. Mm. I, I mean, it, it's important. It's important that um, that we, you know, the the careers that we choose, you know, the path that you choose is is, is something that you that you enjoy. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's not. I mean, it will just make your life so much more uh, happy. You'll be much more happier, and you'll be more interested in sort of you know. Yeah. In, in what you're in sort of you know what you're doing as well there's no mm. point I mean in, in, in pursuing a career which you don't like to do especially mm. if you're being forced to do something if you're you know whether it's um, whether it's I mean peer pressure might not be that much but mm. more more, so, more sort of to do with uh, the pressure from your family you know from yeah. your family from your relatives from your friends maybe they are telling you they are sort of you know they are asking you what I mean genuine questions though hmm. that hmm. Uh, okay fine you're, you you want to do this but how far is that going to get you yeah. uh, what's that actually going to lead to as well yeah. uh, so I'm delighted to say that we do have online with us our next guest uh, Dr. Nino Burrows who is a psychologist author speaker and activist specialising in sexual violence and domestic abuse uh, she is the author of um, The Courage to Be Me, 
um, eyes open to se- sexual abuse and what every parent needs to know and responding to the challenge of rape myths in court a guide for prosecutors she is also the creator of the online video series sexual abuse um, the questions you've never had the chance to ask uh, the presenter of the BBC's uh, Rape Trials is the jury out and patron of Edinburgh Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Doctor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. No worries. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on. Uh, just to begin with, could you talk to us a bit about your role as a psychologist and what it involves? So um, I'm quite an unusual psychologist. Yeah. And, uh, I kind of see my job as um, bridging the gap between all of that gorgeous research that is out there in very hard to access and hard to read journal articles Hmm. and uh, the public because quite frankly we all need to have the right tools to understand ourselves and each other so I'm I'm basically an educator trying to help people um, learn about themselves learn about their relationships and I obviously specialize in doing that in in the kind of sexual abuse domestic violence world so a lot of my work is about consent so what interested you into furthering your career into, you know, um, sexual abuse and domestic violence? Um, I feel like I didn't choose it. It chose me. Hmm. Um, I was I did my PhD in forensic psychology and I was offered a job at the end of it, which is quite a rare thing to do if you've done a PhD. Pretty, yeah. pretty much have yeah. to become an academic. Hmm. Um, but I was offered a job um, with a prison service working with sex offenders. Yeah. Um, and that's that was my entry, if you like, into this this topic area. I was mm. already interested in offending behaviour, but I I hadn't taken an interest in this. But yep. I took the job, and although I thought I'd find it difficult, and I, of course I did find it difficult, I also found it incredibly interesting mm. and important. And as a psychologist, yeah. I found it very rich terrain to to apply my mind and skills to. Hmm. So, so th- this question might be a bit, um, you know, a bit different. Um, what I want to ask is, we were discussing before about the prison and reform system of uh, countries such as Norway, where you know it's a lot more lenient um, as to compared uh, compared to the UK. So, w- what are your thoughts on uh, like uh, prison reformation and how prisoners should be treated? I feel like if we could sit down and have a very long conversation about justice in this country it would yeah. do us the world, world of good not just justice in terms of how we treat people who are convicted of things but mm. also the huge numbers of people who are living without a sense of justice having experienced harm yeah. Yeah. so I would, I would love it if we could have a much more mature and sophisticated response to this recognizing mm. Yeah, people cause harm and we need to do something about that. Yeah. Um, but we also need to validate the experience of people who've experienced that harm. I feel like we could, um, we have such a black and white way of viewing at it, you know, good, bad, hmm. in prison, not in prison. And I feel that that does not serve us as a community at all. Yeah. And just, just for example, say someone that's, uh, you know, just committed straight up murder, like, and he's been in, pr- in prison for, uh, for life. So mm-hmm. w- what what are your thoughts on on that like th- do you think um he should be allowed like early parole or uh do you think he should have uh, things to look after like once he gets out after 25 years say he's a young person and uh, you know do you think it should be easier for him to get a job after or do you think punishment is necessary 
I think it's a lot more complex than we tend to paint it. So every case is different. Every person is different. We could also ask questions like, why do we live in a society where people, you know, commit these kinds of acts? There's, yeah. To me, crime is a, is a symptom of, of something that is, is wrong with us as a society that we could usefully reflect on. Hmm. So sometimes it feels reassuring to talk about our little systems and tweaking them and changing them. I actually think we need to step back and have a much bigger conversation about, well, what is justice and what kind of society do we want to live in? Because yeah. Tweaking prison reform in terms of how long someone's sentence is is not going to make the kind of fundamental changes that actually, you know, certainly someone like me would like would like to see, but I don't expect to see. Yeah. Um, what can uh, one do if they want to, you know, further themselves into your respective field that you are, um, you know, you have taken on? Um, I feel like lots of people study psychology because they're interested, um, obviously, in people, often themselves and the people around them. And I would encourage everybody to exercise that curiosity and to educate yourself. But it doesn't mean you have to become a psychologist in Mm. the same way that, you know, you love food, but it doesn't mean you have to become a chef. Yeah. Um, but uh, if you do want to go into this field, then, you know, it's, it's, there's a long route ahead of you and it's an expensive route, as Mm. most careers are these days. Um, yeah. But I, I would I would look at it. Um, I would um, I feel like there's this emphasis on having a plan for a career, but actually, you know, the truth of my career is less having a plan and more noticing what's available to mm. me. Um, mm. So you know, notice that you're drawn to a topic area. Yeah. Um, but but also notice you know notice what else is out there. Like what contacts do you have? What opportunities do you have? Because you know, you can't always execute a plan. Mm. Um, and sometimes life is more interesting when you just notice what's in front of you. I, I didn't choose to do a PhD. It came up as an option and I decided to do it. Yeah. Um, I didn't seek my job in the prison service. It, it was an option that came up and I decided to follow it. And, yeah. and that's been much more my path. Hmm. So, so you're basically saying that, you know, one shouldn't just like follow their dreams. They should explore all the options. Follow your dreams, but don't follow them like an engineer. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's this, it's hard and fast, and I'm yeah. going to execute. You, like, follow your dream. It will send you in a direction, but yeah. be open and curious about what else comes along the path because the universe might have something else in mind for you that's more interesting than you could have imagined if you mm. went piece of paper when you're figuring out what you want to do with your life. Yeah, yeah. Um, can, can you expand a bit on your experiences as a psychologist? Yeah, I think um, studying psychology was interested, interesting for me because I was drawn to the topic area out of a deep interest in people. And then, yeah. and then you study psychology and you have to learn lots of statistics. And it's, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really about research methods and you, you come out the other end as a little mini scientist and mm. you may correctly feel that you haven't really encountered the human soul yeah. or psyche. Um, and, you know, that's just simply how we choose to, teach the topic in this in this country hmm. so i guess there's a, there's a warning there like don't expect <laughs> it necessarily to be this beautiful thing yeah. however once you have walked a path and ticked the right boxes you are then at liberty to create your career and hmm. um i actually also trained as i did trained as a counselor and i found that much more interesting and much more what i was hoping psychology would be um i feel like it is 
such a beautiful like psychology is so interesting like yeah. we we can't even define like the psyche is of you know our consciousness our mind and we we can't even define it or point at it so it's mm. certainly fundamentally a deeply interesting and i think really important topic area we facing so many challenges right now and yeah. for me as a psychologist at the core of them yeah. is our psyche it's our desire to control everything that mm. you know is our relationship with our emotions and how we don't um, have a very skillful relationship with them it's causing so many of the issues that we are struggling with and facing yeah. with as a society so i think it's deeply interesting at its core but my experience was that yeah studying it was a lot less um rich than i had hoped hmm. but at the other side i think it's it's just a skill that you can obviously apply anywhere because there are human beings everywhere yeah um and so but i really feel like um you do not have to study psychology to get deeply interested in in yourself and and others there are I've probably, you know, my my greatest learning has definitely been post degree and PhD, not not during that process. That just gave me the tools to understand what I was reading better. Um, yeah. But you could you could certainly go on a beautiful journey with this topic area without having to, um, you know, follow a career path in it. Yeah. Thank you, uh, thank you so much, uh, Doctor, for joining us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. Would love to have you again on another time. Uh, for now, um, have a good morning and uh, bye bye for now. Good morning to you. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. So that was, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Nina Burrows, who is a psychologist and an activist and an author. Uh, she shared some, you know, some really interesting things. Mm. Some really interesting things that uh, about how, like, about the human psyche and what her career path, um, you know, entails. And um, if um, there are any listeners out there who are interested. You know, they should, um, yeah, they, like she said, you, you know, you should follow your dreams, but not blindly. Mm. You should explore all, op- all, all your options. Open, you might, yeah, you be might, open-minded, yeah, yeah, be open-minded. You might like something mm. now, but you never know that once you get into the field, you might not like it. You might not and, like it. Yeah, and, and it, might it, like might not, it might not be the mm. best option for you. Exactly, exactly. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of people who, who choose their careers looking looking on the on the salary, right? They look at they look at the paycheck. They look yeah. at how much is gonna how much money they're gonna get, um, you know, after taxes and everything, mm. and um, they think that this is the best thing, the best option for them. Yeah. But when they actually get into that sort of job or that path, that career, then it may not be something which they thought about as well. Maybe mm. they thought that it's gonna go this way, but it goes it goes left, and then they, they you know it's not something that they that they want as well. So it's not it's not always just about money yeah. uh, obviously that's uh, one of the big factors one of the big things to actually look into but it's also about you know your interests as well your hobbies and what you're interested uh, in as well isn't it yeah um, let's get let's get our next our next guest who is on the line with us Alyssa Gilbert who is the director of policy and translation at the Gratham Institute climate, Ch- uh, climate change and the environment at Imperial College London Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for, for being with us this morning. Um, in in light of your of your several climate-based ba- um, positions, such as the co-chair of the UK uh, University's Climate Network, do, do you have any advice for our listeners who may be sort of interested in, in climate-based careers? I, I think my, my main bit of advice is that there's really something out there for everyone. 
So, you know, the work that I do on climate change, I started from having a science background and I worked as a journalist. Um, I work in a university now, but I've worked in the private sector as well. And there's, there's really a lot, of, a lot of opportunities now in climate change. So if you are interested in climate, try and figure out what other kinds of things you like doing. What do you like doing with your day? What kind of job do you want? Hmm. And then look for a, a job with a climate dimension in that area. So I think there's, there really is something for everyone. Interesting. Now, you, I mean, talking about you specifically or, or personally, what inspired you to go, uh, to go forth you know, in, in this respective field? Well, I think, you know, when I, when I, you know, I've been working for a couple of decades now, and I think climate change wasn't as prominent maybe, you know, when I started my career as it is now. But there was, there was a lot of conversation already about the way in which, you know, humans are treating or not respecting our environment and all of the different solutions that were available. So mm. when I finished my, my science degree, I always knew that I wanted to do something to do with the environment. And all I did was I just thought, okay, what, what is out there that has an environmental dimension to it? How can I start building out experiences that, that can enable me to make a difference in this area? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you've previously worked as a, as a journalist in Brussels. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Any, any tips and, or words of advice for our listeners who sort of, you know, may be interested in journalism? Yeah, well, I think I think the world of journalism has changed a lot since I did that job. So, I mean, I, I guess it would surprise some people. I started that job uh, in 1999, I think. Mm. And at that point, there was a big debate going on in the newsroom about the extent to which they should have online presence versus a paper copy. So, they, I mean, the, the world of journalism has changed quite a lot. Um, but this, I think some of the basic skills that you need are still the same. Um, so, you know, I was coming from a science degree and I, I particularly took that job because I, I wanted to learn how to express myself well in writing. And that's a skill that's really, really useful for anyone, no matter what you're doing, whether you want to be a journalist or not. Um, being able to write well and impactfully is important and also particularly important when you want to make a difference in the world. So I would encourage anyone um, to, to, you know, hone their writing skills. Um, and it's also about, you know, being really interested in finding out what's about to happen. You know, I was I was working as a journalist in Brussels and a lot of you know, there's a lot of policy making that happens and there's lots of different institutions and organizations involved. On the environmental policy side you've got um environmental and non governmental organizations and campaign groups. Mm. Um you've also got, you know, technical experts working in the European Commission, which is the law one of the one of the one of the lawmaking bodies in Brussels. And there's this interchange between all of these different actors and it's quite exciting. I mean, I think that some of the job of a journalist is to get to the bottom of the story and then share it with people who aren't deeply immersed in that world. And so if that's something you find interesting, that is part of the job of a journalist, regardless of whether we're now in a sort of online media age or not. Um, understanding a complicated issue and recognizing the importance of analyzing it and sharing it with the public, is, it's a really exciting thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it must be as well. Um, t- talking about your your present role as uh, director of policy and translation at the Grantham Institute, can you s- share us any tips um, that you've you know that that's sort of helped you come this far, and something that will be benefi- beneficial for for our listeners? Um, yeah, I guess in my in my current role, so I work at a university. Um, I work at Imperial College in London, and my job. I mean, the word translation is people can be misled to think I'm, I'm speaking in different languages, but really what I'm doing is trying to take really interesting science and share it with people outside the academic and scientific community so that they can use that in what they're doing day to day to make decisions that are better for the environment. Um, and, and so I guess 
again, what I'd say is that communication and collaboration are a big part of what I do. So there's lots of technical dimensions, which are really, really interesting. Um, but being able to work effectively with people across different boundaries is a really important part of having an impact on the world around us. There are, so there are lots of people that I engage with who are doing things. Um, they might work in government. They might work in businesses. They might work in community groups or they might be part of a community group. Um, and then I work with a lot of people who are academics who do research every day. Um, and there are also students that we work with at the university. And all of those people live in a certain world or community that they understand well and they can communicate well with. But sharing the ideas between those different people can just make a huge difference to the impact we can all have. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Just coming back to um, uh, talking about you when you were a, a journalist in Brussels, um, where there's different news outlets, and you know you explained as well that the the, the way that news is portrayed um, is sort of different to what it used to be a couple, you know, a couple of uh, few de- a few decades ago. How with, with so many journalists uh, out there, especially on social media, how do we actually know? you know, what is, you know, the right information or what these journalists, what different journalists, what different news outlets are actually saying, the the stories that they're publishing as well, the reports. How do we actually know that what is, you know, genuine fact and what is sort of, you know, misinformation? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a growing area of, of study in itself. <laughs> and I think we can still, um, you know, being attached to, you know, well-reputable organizations is still really, really important. So, um, you know, so it, it does it, it it does help when you see that that a, a journalist comes from a certain organization hmm. um, that might and 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 actually a lot of the stories that we read even on social media are often produced. A lot of the the source material still comes from perhaps a, a well recognized um, journalistic source that may have you know started as a print media source or hmm. it might be a national news agency. Hmm. So looking for those brands is actually important, and it tells you not only. Um, that they're coming from perhaps a reputable source. But it can tell you a little bit about um, the leaning, the ideological leaning of those sources too. So if you want to keep your, you know, a critical bit of your brain open, you can say, okay, that's interesting. I can see that that person um, also includes lots of quotes from Mm. people that come from different organizations. So I can see that they have lots of different source material. I can see that it comes from an organization that I know is reputable in, in the broader journalistic sense. But I can also perhaps make a conclusion that 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 journalist might, you know, that that organization might usually tell me something that's more right of right of center or left of center or might take a certain viewpoint. And keeping that in your mind can give you a little bit of a critical insight into where they're coming from. Um, and then I'd always say, if, you, if you're looking for sources of information, read more than one, you know. And mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's what social media can be helpful for because it's quite easy to follow um, sources, different sources of information at the same time. Um, and that, that, you know, sometimes follow someone you always disagree with. I always recommend that. Always follow someone you disagree with because mm-hmm. then um, that challenges your thinking sometimes. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, some good words of advice, some good tips as well uh, there as well. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Alyssa, this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Have a, have a lovely day. Thank you once again. Thank you so much for your time. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, so that was uh, Alyssa Gilbert from uh, from Imperial College London and a very interesting um, uh, discussion that we had over there as well. Um, we've got a brief uh, audio clip uh, that we want to uh, play for you guys as well. Let's listen to that uh, right now. The point is that uh, man is a much larger entity 
then uh, some specialized uh, people think the modern world wants to turn men into small machines and computers to lose touch of the environment entirely and serve the general scheme of things controlled by some higher government policy makers. So they would much rather prefer scientists, so purely scientists, that they don't know anything of the world outside. They will gain, of course, to some extent that individual will also gain, and to some extent the people whom they, he is ultimately going to serve, they would gain, but he would lose a much uh, higher value, that is, of an individual. To enjoy life as an individual, to understand the phenomena of life, to serve nobler purposes, he'll be deprived of that. There are few people who can, at the same time, maintain these two parts together. Like Dr. Abdul Salam, he's one of those genius people who, who maintains both these departments intact and pays his uh, dues to both his uh, personality as a religion, as a social person, and as a scientist. And scientifically, has, he has not lost. Why? Because despite the fact that you lose something of the time you might have spent on science, you gain something of the vision which you could not have gained if you had devoted yourself entirely to that narrow subject. So, science in itself is the product of a larger vision in which other aspects of life also help find out results, come out, uh, come out with new inventions and things. So, a broader base is necessary for development in a single line. So, you should concentrate generally on science, but without sacrificing your part as a human being. And as a human being, your first and prime responsibility would lie in the direction of religion, because it only, it does not only pertain to the life on earth, it's a, a department which is much more important to an individual. Of course there is an if involved. If there is a God, then there is religion. And if there is a religion, then you can't uh, gainsay the idea I am uh, uh, suggesting, that in that case, religion becomes much more important than anything else, because it covers your interests in this world as well as the world to come. And much larger span of life is lying ahead, beyond death. So if that is correct, obviously the natural uh, crawlery would be this, that you can't ignore this. So keep, try to make, strike a compromise between religion, your duties towards religion, and your duty, duties toward your, towards your special field. But just do not get yourself lost in one narrow field, ultimately to be a tool in the hands of some people you are serving and you don't know what's happening to you. That was the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on him, um, telling us, you know, discussing how Muslims should balance their time between pursuing a career and practicing their religion as, as, uh, religion as well, something which is very, very much important. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not just about, you know, the career mm. that you follow, it's about, you know, making mm. sure that you put your 
religion on top of these things as well. You don't want to compromise. Yeah. You don't want to compromise uh, your religion. Hmm. Um, so all of these things are, are very, very much, uh, very, very much important. So just, you know, just like that uh, in in our community, in the Hindi Muslim community, we have yeah. uh, people that are known as Vakfizindigi, life devotees. We mm. go on um, in various different fields as well. So we have like engineers, doctors, we have uh, teachers in the various different parts of the world. You can volunteer as well. Mm. And, um, you know, that can be a very, you know, it can be a bit challenging as well. As a, It's, it's not just a career path, it's a life choice, right? It's, it's for the rest of your life. You're basically devoting your life to the community to serve Islam. And... Um, you know, it can be very, very beneficial, not just for um, just for the propagation of Islam, but for mm. your soul as well. Of course. Spiritually. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. That, that's another thing that, you know, um, that people, uh, especially within our community, can look in towards and, uh, you know, consider. Consider, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that's all we have time for uh, on today's breakfast show. Thank you so much for listening and uh, tuning in. Today's show was produced by Tahir Amini and Maliha Mahmood and researched by, uh, by uh, Maria uh, Maraj uh, Mehrish Maliha. Thank you so much for joining. Assalamu alaikum. <laughs>